Today's scripture reading is John 1:19 through 29. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are you?" He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." And they asked him, "What then? Are you Elijah?" He said, "I am not. Are you the prophet?" And he answered, "No." So they said to him, "Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself?" He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lincoln. Well, again, church, good to be with you. Um, I would like to pray for our time as we continue to hear from God through his word. So let's take a moment to pray together. Father, I I ask in this moment simply that your spirit, not simply, but profoundly, that your spirit would speak through these words, your servant John, who beholds the Lamb of God. And Lord, in kind, would we, by the power of your spirit, be able to see, behold, receive the beauty of the fullness of this statement. And may we leave forever change as a result of what we hear, of what we see, of what we behold, of what we delight in. Lord Jesus, be seen and known in this time. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, this is a a familiar story uh, and maybe an old hat uh, at this point, but like any good story, it bears repeating. And if there's anybody who knows anything about repeating stories, it's this guy. So, uh, but on, on, um, back in 2007, on January 11th, uh, the world-renowned violinist Joshua Bell uh, performed at the U.S. Library of Congress. Uh, the tickets for this event uh, started at $100 a pop and went upwards from there. But the next day, uh, the same violinist, Joshua Bell, performed in a public area just outside a subway entrance uh, wearing street clothes. Uh, and he was, wearing his, he was playing his Stradivarius violin, the open case of which was before him looking like a common street performer. And it was an experiment of, of kind to, to see how able and ready we are as people uh, to, to observe and to behold beauty when it is before us. There was a, a hidden camera that captured uh, the passersby. And while some people stopped and enjoyed Enjoyed the music, and in fact, one person was able to identify Joshua Bell. The vast majority of people were just too busy to have their eyes and ears and hearts open to the beauty that was right before them. Because you see, there, there's a difference between just simply seeing beauty and intentionally putting yourself in the way of beauty. That there's a difference between just hearing a song and feeling the music. There's a difference between just getting a bite to eat and relishing a meal with friends. There's a difference between just going for a walk outside and delighting in the beauty of God's creation. And similarly, there's a difference between just seeing Jesus and beholding Jesus. And so the the question I want us to ponder and consider as a church family today is this, is do we see Jesus or do we behold Jesus? Is he just kind of in the background or do we actually behold him for who he 
is. Now, if you're new to Christ community, we have been journeying through the Gospel of John in our series, Word Made Flesh. And and where we find ourselves today, we're coming out of the prologue of John's Gospel, the opening section where John is introducing us to Jesus, and we come to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in his interaction, recorded for us in his interaction with John the Baptist. Uh, He is the one, John the Baptist is recorded as the one who beholds Jesus fully. And, and this might be a little confusing. We have two men named John. You have John the, the gospel writer and John the Baptist, two different men. So for the sake of simplicity, uh, I'm going to refer to John the gospel writer as the evangelist. That's often how he's referred to. And John the Baptist, we're going to call Carl, okay? Uh, just kidding. We're just going to call, we'll call him John. Uh, that was funny in my head. So here's what we're going to do. So I want to set the context for us of where we are. So John the Baptist, who is related to Jesus, they're cousins of sorts, uh, he is the forerunner. His role, called by God, is to be the one preparing the way for the Messiah. And and John makes this clear in verse 23 in what he says, that his entire life is to make straight the path for the Messiah, to remove all barriers that stand in the way of people beholding Jesus. John's entire life in ministry is about humbling himself, which he does very well, but also in exalting Jesus Christ. And we see this in the first words recorded for us of John the Baptist in verse 19. Look with me there again. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And I just, I just love this interaction. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And then they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And then are you the prophet? And he just answered, No. And I just love how his answers get shorter and shorter. But notice his first response, are you the Christ? And, or, or who are you? And his first response is, I am not the Christ. In one short sentence, John is able to simultaneously humble himself and magnify Jesus. And we'll see this later on in John, but John is this ideal witness of what it means to bear witness to Jesus, which we'll see later on in John's gospel here. But in this moment, we see that John's primary identity is wrapped up in making much of the Messiah, preparing the way, allowing all barriers to be removed so that all might see Jesus. And then the moment arrives, Jesus approaches. A man whom John has seen before at family gatherings, I'm sure, but is seeing him in a new way. And the evangelist records for us these words in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want us to just kind of imagine, like put ourselves kind of in the sandals, you know, of John the Baptist in this moment. Like, what is, what is he feeling and thinking and experiencing? This is the moment he's been pre- preparing for kind of his entire life. And, may, and even more to the point, it's the moment that all of Israel, the, the, the historic promised people of God have been waiting for, the dawn of the Messiah. And this finally, this moment arrives And so perhaps these words that John declares and pronounces, perhaps they're words that he'd been rehearsing for some time. Like, okay, uh, what will I say? Behold the Lamb of God. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'll start with that. I mean, maybe in this moment, the locusts in his tummy that he'd been eating very many of had transformed into butterflies. There's this nervous energy as he's seeing finally the dawning of the Messiah. And maybe before he pronounces that the Lamb of God has come, he first whispers it to his own heart as a way to receive this truth. Whatever it is, and regardless of what John is feeling in this moment, it is the moment he has been waiting for his entire life. But it is not the moment that many other people were waiting for, at least not the moment that they were expecting. 
Because you see, the people of Israel, they were, they were preparing for and awaiting a Messiah who would be some kind of powerful leader, even a dictator of sorts, a ruling figure, a mighty warrior who would come to destroy their enemies and restore Israel to a place of national, political, military power. And so whatever Israel was waiting for, I assure you this, they were not waiting for a lamb. They were not waiting for a simple, kind, cuddly animal. I mean, this is the image. Like, no one's waiting for a lamb as a symbol of victory and of conquering. To view the Messiah as a lamb was not only shocking to the people of Israel, but it was, it was categorically antithetical to how they expected the Messiah to be and to arrive. They were expecting a military or political leader of some kind. No one was looking for a lamb. And and if we're honest, just to kind of bring this first century text into the 21st century, if we're honest, neither are we. We're we're not looking for a lamb. That's not our ideal picture of, of a leader, of someone who guides us. I mean, sure, in principle, we like the ideas of humility, servant leadership, loving your enemies, but it seems as though so often we are drawn to more kind of brutish, brash, bombastic leaders uh, who, who guide us. And, and leaders who are, who are less described by the words of Jesus as being gentle and lowly. And so churches, we even just think about our own lives for a minute. Like, do our leadership styles, do our management styles in our, in our Monday lives, do they reflect the one whom John beholds as the Lamb of God? Do our parenting styles or, or our relationships, are they marked more by words of authority or more by words of service and sacrifice? Are our preferred politicians and news pundits, are they people who are de- described as being those that unite and collaborate or are they known more for dividing and tearing down? There's much we could say about what it means to behold Jesus as the Lamb of God. But here's the one thing I want us to hear and take from our time. It's this. That if we don't see a lamb, we don't see Jesus. If we don't see a lamb, we don't see, we do not behold Jesus. If we are to take Jesus seriously, worship him rightly, follow him completely, and obey him fully, then we need to see him as the Lamb of God. And and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. It, It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't mighty, isn't strong, isn't powerful. He is those things indeed, but his is a humble might, a loving power, a sacrificial strength. Do we see Jesus or do we behold him as the Lamb? So here's what I want to do with with the remainder of our time allotted to me, is I want us to see what John saw. I I want us to behold the lamb as John is seeing him arrive, but but what I want to do is do so in reverse order. I want to look at this very powerful operative statement that John gives, but I want us to look at it in reverse order. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does it mean that the lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world? Now, this word world uh, is, is a word that is translated from the Greek word cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmos. I'm really smart, people. I just, just hope you understand that. But like, the point being, like, that was a joke, that was a joke. But the word cosmos here that John uses, it's describing the totality of creation. 
incorporating humans, but also the created physical world. But John in particular, when he references the cosmos, the world, he's referring to its broken and hostile state as it is against God and his good design for creation. And so for us to behold the Lamb of God fully and rightly, we must see the wide scope of what Jesus has come to do in being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this word world, there are two truths that are kind of baked into it that I want us to understand. The first is this, that Jesus has come to redeem and to restore all peoples, not just the covenant people of Israel. Jesus has come to draw all peoples from all nations unto himself. The biblical authors make this clear. Jesus himself makes this clear. But also the gospel writer, the evangelist John, makes this clear. That Jesus has come to be the light to the Gentiles, those outside the covenant people of Israel. He has come to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise to be a blessing to all peoples. And that he is the one whose disciples are to come from all nations, all cultures, all ethnicities. And the evangelist already has said as much to us in the prologue. If you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 1, verses 9 and 12. The gospel writer says this, The true light, referring to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then skip down to verse 12. And to all who did receive him, who all, all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the first truth is that Jesus has come to redeem and to take away the sin of the world to reach all peoples. The second truth is this, and it pertains to the actual physical world itself, which John has in mind as he has already introduced us to Jesus the word of God, who is the cosmic word, who stands over creation, who by his very power brings about creation itself. The gospel writer has in mind the wide scope of the entire cosmos, the entire created order, as he unveils the work of Jesus, who has come to take away the sin of the world, the totality of all that God has made and that has fallen into brokenness and sin. I know I've mentioned the New City Catechism before. It's a great resource. Uh, we, there's like a full kind of adult version, and then there's the little bitty kid version, which is great. I highly recommend this. I encourage you to pick up a copy. But the New City Catechism, one of the questions in responding to the redemption of Jesus, asks this question, what else does Christ's death redeem? And, and look at the wide scope here. This is echoing the words of the evangelist. Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. That includes souls and solar systems. That includes broken hearts and broken neighborhoods. That includes corrupt consciences and corrupt corporations. That includes polluted minds and polluted skies. Jesus has come to be the redeemer of all of fallen creation. Dr. Anthony Bradley, he's a a professor at King's College in New York City, um, frames this wide-scope mission of Jesus that I think is so beautiful. And he uses this phrase, cosmic redemptive Christianity. It's, It's very akin to what John is describing for us here. Notice what Dr. Bradley says. God's cosmic kingdom includes industry, technology, recreation, the arts, education, commerce, politics, and so on. And as a result, as a result, poverty matters to God. 
Gun violence matters to God. Racism matters to God. Divorce, child abuse, genocide, sex trafficking, all matter to God. Issues of justice in society, Bradley goes on to say, for Christians are first and foremost, they are issues of liberating the creation from the work of the devil. This is the wide scope of what it means to see Jesus' mission as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. If we are to behold the Lamb of God, we must behold the fullness of his mission and the wide scope of what he has come to do. So who has Jesus come for? He has come for the entire world. He has come for you and for me, for the lost, for the broken, and he has come to restore and redeem this broken, created world. But what has he come to do? What does it mean that he has come to redeem the world? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I know the word sin is not a very popular word in our culture. I mean, even Christians, we don't use the word sin very often. We'll, we'll substitute it for a more uh, palatable synonym like brokenness. And, and that's a good word. It's an appropriate word. But we should also call a thing a thing. We should also not shy away from speaking about sin. Christians need to understand the fullness of sin so that we might fully understand. And not just Christians, all people need to know the fullness of sin so that we might know the fullness of our redemption through Christ. Sin is a reality. In fact, I would actually say sin is an abnormality. It is, it is a deviation away from God's intended design for, for creation and for us. Sin is an abnormality that produces immorality that then results in our mortality. I'm going to say that again. Sin is an abnormality that brings about immorality that produces our mortality. And if we don't have a full, robust understanding of what sin is, what it does to us, and what we do with it... We will not behold the Lamb of God in his fullness. We often think of sin as just doing bad things, which that's true. It's no less than that. That's like, that's like junior varsity understanding of sin, but it's much more than that. Sin is not just the bad things that we do and the good things we refrain from doing. Sin, first and foremost, must be seen as an affront to God, as, as an attack against his good design for our good and for the flourishing of all creation. Theologian Cornelius Plantiga, he defines sin, I think it's really helpful, as the vandalism against God's shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. Sin is the vandalism against God's shalom. Sin is our attempt to unweave the fabric of flourishing for ourselves, for others, and the created order. Plantiga, he goes on to say this. This is really helpful. He says, God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom. It violates peace because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. And so what this means is that every injustice, every abuse, every evil that we have experienced or that we have been complicit in is traced back to sin, is traced back to an affront against God, is traced back to a vandalism against his good designed shalom. And Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the fullness of what Jesus has come to accomplish. And notice that he has not just come to take away our sins, plural, but sin, singular, the sin, the totality of sin. That there is a day that is coming when sin itself, its power, its penalty and presence will be eradicated. And we long for that day. And this, 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 uh, there's a theological term 
used to describe what it means that Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world. It's the word expiation. Say it with me. Expiation. Look at that. You're all deputized theologians. And what that word literally means, it's the removal of. It is the taking away. It is the casting out of sin. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins, our transgressions from us. What this means is that Jesus has come not simply to forgive us of sins, he's absolutely done that, but to remove our sins from us, to remove the power of the thing, to destroy the thing that is destroying us. Now here's the thing, we we all feel the pains and the burdens of sin. Whether we call it sin or not, whether you have a theology of sin or not, we all feel sin. We all feel the need to be rescued and restored and renewed in some way. We all wonder if there's any hope of finding wholeness or healing. And John definitively tells us the answer is yes. And it is found in beholding the Lamb of God. And so to behold Jesus means to see the fullness of his mission that is for the entire world. It means to see that he has come to take away our sin, not just to make us better people. But how has he come to do this? How has he come to fulfill his wide scope mission for the world? How has he come to take away our sin? We see it in the beautiful beginning of John's pronouncement. Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus as the Lamb of God is not simply a display of his humble service. It is absolutely that. But it is also a display of his holy sacrifice. The Lamb of God is not just symbolism. It is a way that John, and maybe John doesn't even fully know what he's declaring in this moment, He, like me, is saying things more than he even knows. And he's pronouncing that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. And what he is saying is he's bringing the entire story of the biblical narrative together and centering it on Jesus. Because John's pronouncement that the Lamb of God has come is echoing the great Passover in the book of Exodus. In the story of Exodus, we see that the covenantal people of Israel have been enslaved by Egypt and God has promised to deliver them from slavery, and his plan was to do so by means of judgment against their captors. And God declared that his holy wrath would come and would be poured out upon all who did not take shelter in the exact ways prescribed. And in the story of Exodus, they are commanded by God to take the blood of a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, and to place the blood of this lamb upon the doorposts of their home. As this, lamb, as this blood of the lamb is placed upon the doorpost of their home, it serves as the shelter, as the protection from the judgment of God that is to come. This was a sign of God's promise that his wrath would pass over every home marked by the blood of the lamb. And that all who trusted in this promise and all who placed their entire lives under the blood of the lamb would be saved and delivered. In the book of Exodus chapter 12, we read these words. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So as John pronounces the arrival of the Messiah, he is not just giving beautiful symbolism. He is echoing the very words of the Exodus, the very words of God's deliverance of his covenantal people from slavery. He is echoing the grand story of God's covenantal love for and his liberation of his people. 
But this pronouncement that John makes, it goes even further back than Exodus. Because John's words, behold the lamb, they're actually echoing another story of redemption. In Genesis 22, we see uh, maybe a familiar story if you've grown up in church, the story of Abraham offering up his son, his one and only son, Isaac, to be sacrificed according to the command of God. A story that at face value is disturbing and strange to say the least. But it is disturbing and strange because we don't see it in the fullness of the story of what God is doing. Like all grand narratives, if you only see one portion of it, you're confused. But you must see it in the fullness of what it is declaring. Because the story of Isaac being offered up as a sacrifice is a thread in the cord that is woven through the entire storyline of Scripture. For in that story, as Abraham is preparing to do the unthinkable, Isaac asks his father this very important question in verse 7. Behold, he's speaking to his father, behold, notice that word, behold. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb. As the story goes, God does provide the sacrifice, but he doesn't provide a lamb. He provides a ram and said, there's a ram caught in a thicket. And maybe we're led to think like, did God not hear them? You know, did, did he kind of mistake lamb for ram? No, that was by design. God provided a ram in that moment because the lamb was yet to come. God provided a ram because he was preparing for the lamb that was to come. The question that Isaac asked so many years ago, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? It is finally and fully answered in the words of John the Baptist. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For centuries, God's people have asked the question, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? For centuries, God's people offered sacrifice after sacrifice for sins so countless, wondering if there would ever be an end to this system of offering blood sacrifice for our sins. Would there ever be an end to this? And church, this is what it means to behold Jesus. Jesus, to see him as the Lamb of God, to see him as the one that we long for, and to see him as the one that we need. And so friends, you may not be asking the question, where is the Lamb? You may not be asking it in those words, but all of us are asking it in some way, shape, or form. Where can I find hope? Where can I find meaning? Where can I find change? Where can I find wholeness? We all know that we are not who we ought to be. We all feel the dissonance between who we are and who we know we long to be in some way. We know the world that we inhabit is not the way it's supposed to be. We feel that dissonance viscerally. That the world is broken. And it brings about this question, is there anything or anyone that can, can bring about a remedy to that which wounds us, that which ails us? A remedy to our shame, to our guilt, to our pain, and frankly to our sin, our vandalism against God. And John declares, yes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So friends, do we, do we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Do we see Jesus as the Lamb of God who has come to take away, to remove entirely our sin and the sin of the world? Or do we just see Jesus as another voice among the voices Another face among the faces. 
And if we do not, if we do not behold Jesus in this way, then the question is, what's standing in our way? What, what is blocking our field of vision? What is keeping us from beholding Jesus? What, what, what needs to be removed in our path before us in order to receive and respond to him in the ways that we are called to? My prayer for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, is that we would all possess the ability by the Spirit to not simply see Jesus, but to slow down enough to behold him, to see him for who he is as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And that we would respond in wholehearted worship and obedience to Jesus out of delight for what he has done for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, that that would be a response. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, my prayer is that you would behold the Lamb of God in wholehearted repentance and faith, recognizing the brokenness and the sin within you and, and, and how Jesus has come to fully be the Lamb who takes away our sin. And perhaps even now is the time to respond and to receive Jesus as the Lamb of God, to receive from him the life that he lived that you and I could not live, to receive from him his death that we should have died, to receive from him the victory over the grave that was marked for all of us. And so my hope and prayer is that God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would equip each of us and grant us the ability to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't stop beholding. You continue to clarify your focus and seeing the beauty and the wide scope of what Christ has come to accomplish in us as well as through us. May we, by the power of God's Spirit, come to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? And so to that end, what I, what I want to do is we move into prayer and to communion. I, I, want, I want to do two things. I want to grant us just time to respond in prayer. Uh, for, for some of us, so we're going to spend the next 90 seconds, and for some of us, that may be a time to respond in praying for our nine people through E90, the nine people we want to come to know Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I invite you to respond in this time in, in faith and repentance and prayer, recognizing your brokenness and sin and need of a Savior, and rejoicing the fact that that Savior has come, and you can behold him in the person of Jesus. But the good news is that the Lamb has come. Thanks be to God. And so let us take time now to respond in prayer to the lamb that has come to take away the sin of the world. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, Lord, hallowed be your name. You are holy and beyond our comprehension. And yet through the power of Jesus, the Son of God, who has come, the Word made flesh, we we now know you. We now have the ability and the power to know you and to call you Father and to allow you to call us Son through what Christ has accomplished for us. Lord, I pray for all of my sisters and brothers in this room who have come to trust in you, who see their who see their identity as as those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Lord, that you would equip them with the ability to live the fullness of their lives in light of the fact that they have been forgiven and redeemed. And may that renew in them a desire to live out the power of the gospel that brings about change and transformation, forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray for those who are not with us now, those that we are praying for that, that might come to know you, would you, Do the work of John the Baptist in in making a straight path and remove the barriers so that people might see the Lord Jesus. Behold him as the Lamb of God. And Lord, for those who are with us now who don't know you yet, would you by the power of your Spirit awaken them to see and to behold Jesus as their only hope in life and in death. And may you transform your family now and forever through the power of Christ Jesus. It is in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.